Today is the start of a series called A Fresh Look, and this being part one, and it probably will take three or four weeks to go through. It's on the Ten Commandments, and I want to take a fresh look at the Ten Commandments. Ted Turner, the founder of CNN and other cable networks, commented that the Ten Commandments were given with the sole purpose of taking the fun out of life. He also told the Dallas Morning News that Christianity was a religion for losers. He commented that he had lived a bit on the wild side, and it, if that sentenced him to hell, then so be it. Later, he stood before the American Humanist Association and proclaimed that it was time to update the Ten Commandments. He believes they are grossly out of date. So he recommended that it was time for his 10 voluntary initiatives, which took a much more politically correct direction. And these would include a vow of nonviolence, an effort to be friendlier, and the promise to have no more than two children, when he already had five. Some people scoffed at the mouth of the South, as he was known, but in some humanistic circles, Ted Turner's top 10 is still admired and studied. It certainly tells many people what they already want to hear without making any demands of personal morality or, for that matter, any mention of God at all. But you know, there's something in us that really doesn't like rules, and we see the Ten Commandments as rules. When you're late for an appointment, and you're slamming down the accelerator to get across town quickly, that stop sign seems like a real annoyance. And if no other cars are coming, then you will do what we used to call a Quebec stop, which means you would slow down. And it feels, this whole thing would feel like some silly rule. But on the other hand, if you move into that intersection and spot another speeding car coming at you and ignoring the stop sign, well, then the rules look a lot better. At that moment, you appreciate stop signs, and you understand how they were placed there for your protection. The Ten Commandments are stop signs at the prime intersections of life. They were given by a God who loves us and wants only the best for us. You know, a personal note here. Many years ago, I read a book by a pastor who's now in heaven. His name is Ron Meal. And it was called The Tender Commandments. And it had a major impact on my life. I remember the book among the many hundreds that I have read since. So it was and is very special and had an impact on my personal journey with Jesus. He wrote that these Ten Commandments are an expression of love from the Father to his children, which is why he called them the Tender Commandments. Let me quote the one thing that really hit home for me in the chapter that I was reading at that point in time. A tender, heartfelt message from the very hand of God. It's all there. He doesn't leave anything out. The ten statements are all-encompassing, touching virtually every part of our lives. They are the parameters to live by. The truths that God knows are going to provide blessing and strength, a future and a hope. One of my favorite teachers, the British preacher Charles Spurgeon, 
He died in 1892. He said, The law of the Ten Commandments is a gift of great kindness to the sons and daughters of men, for it tells us the wisest and happiest way of living. It forbids us nothing but what would be to our injury, and it withholds nothing from us, nothing which would be a real pleasure to us. God does not make laws denying us anything that would really be for our good. So we ought to see the love of God in the gift of the law, the Ten Commandments. That's what makes sense then why the psalmist would say, Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 19, verse 9 and 10, The ordinances of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. We don't look at the Ten Commandments this way. We don't understand this because we tend to think of the law as a dead and limiting set of rules and regulations. But the psalmist thinks of the law as a living and a loving thing. The psalmist recognizes the law as the expression of the will of the living God, and not only his will, but his way of expressing his love to us, his children. Some believers, some leaders today, teach and believe that Jesus somehow made the commandments obsolete that since we now live under grace, we need not bother with the baggage of commandments and law. That's a very common misconception, and it's a very serious false teaching in the church today. Jesus made it clear that he honored the Ten Commandments and considered them to have eternal authority. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 7, If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus did not cancel the Ten Commandments. He extended them past the physical realm into the heart realm. Hate is now equal to murder. Lust is now adultery in God's eyes. Sometime take a few minutes and read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. Jesus said, in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus does not break with the Old Testament law. He is the law's perfect expression. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live other than Jesus, summarized his accumulated wisdom when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He's talking about life. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. So today and next time, and maybe a couple more weeks after that, I want to take a fresh walk through the Ten Commandments, the immortal directives. And I think it's good that we discover rediscover what they really meant and what they mean today, now, for us. Let's start by reviewing them. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and I'm reading from the Message Version. 
God spoke all these words. I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a life of slavery. No other gods, only me. No carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything whatever, whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow down to them and don't serve them, because I am God, your God, and I am a most jealous God, punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them, to the third and, yes, even to the fourth generation of those who hate me. But I am unswervingly loyal to the thousands who love me, keep my commandments. No using the name of God, your God, in curses and silly banter. God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to God, your God. Don't do any work. Not you, nor your sons, nor your daughter, nor your servant, nor your maid, nor your animals, not even the foreign guest visiting in your town. For in six days God made heaven, earth, and the sea, everything in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day. He set it apart as a holy day. Honor your father and mother so that you will live a long time in the land that God, your God, is giving you. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lies about your neighbor, no lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. So we have ten commandments. The first four commandments are the dealing with the relationship between you and your God. And the last six commandments, the relationship between you and other people. So let's look at the first commandment, what I call the fundamental rule. Again, let's reread it, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. God spoke all these words, I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is like the hub of a wheel from which all the others are spokes. This isn't simply another commandment. It's the one that brings all of them together and makes all of them make sense. In context, the story leading up to the giving of the commandments, God's love is on display. When Moses arrives at the top of Mount Sinai to receive the commandments, God tells him to remind the people of his great love for them in the past and his careful watch and his love for them over their lives throughout their redemption from Egypt. Exodus 19, verses 3 and 4. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, Thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Later, as Moses returns to the mountain, bearing the second set of the two stone tablets, God passes before his servant again and refers to himself as, The Lord passed before by him and proclaimed, the Lord, your Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, 
abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So the context, the story leading up to the giving of the commandments, is that God is putting his love on display. Israel stands at a crossroads in its history. Behind them, the pagan gods of the Egyptians. Ahead of them, the pagan gods of the Canaanites. The Israelites have been and will continue to be caught up in the cultures of false gods. So the one true God now wants his people to know that he insists on an exclusive relationship with them. There are no others like him. They must not allow their spirit or their hearts to wander after the false hopes of pagan gods. So what God is saying very strongly in the first fundamental rule, the first commandment, is that if you have, you will have no other gods. It is only then that you can have me. So God is saying in very strong terms, let me repeat it, if you will have no other gods, it is only then that you can have me as your God. In other words, there's no middle ground here. The Lord God will not be one option among many. It still holds true today. Idolatry, worshiping other gods, is no outdated sin, but the same threat it always has been and always will be. The gods have changed their names, of course. They're no longer called Baal and Ashtoreth. Now they call themselves wealth, or power, or comfort, or appetite, or pornography, or pleasure, or success, or whatever it is that is controlling your heart today. Counterfeit gods never die. They simply come up with new disguises and continue trying to lead us away from the only true God who offers a relationship of love and personal care. Martin Luther wrote, That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is really your God. I recently read about a series of religious services that were advertised in Scottish newspapers. The first part of the ad was printed on page one and simply directed readers to the last page of the paper. And there in large print was the question, is this where you are putting God? Many Christians today have regretfully pushed God to the back page. They have allowed other gods to clutter up their lives. God does not ask for a prominent place among all the other gods. He insists that there be no other gods, period. A half-forgotten God is no God at all. He demands page one of our lives. God wants an exclusive love relationship with you. He wants to be the hub of the wheel called life, as this is how life was meant to be lived and enjoyed. A wheel can only have one hub. Try to set it spinning around any other point and you crash. In the same way, God is the hub of the universe and is asking to be the hub of your personal life. T.S. Eliot said it this way, the still point in the turning world. No one else can be the center of your life. So again, in Exodus chapter 20, let's reread verses 1 to 3. God spoke all these words. I, the Lord, 
am your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It was the love of God for us, his people, that caused him to limit the worship of his people to himself alone. No one else can be the center of your life. Exodus chapter 20 says that so plainly. It was the love of God for us, his people, that caused him to limit the worship of his people to himself alone. To tolerate worship of other gods would have turned the Israelites loose to explore a multitude of lifeless idols, utterly incapable of meeting their needs or bringing them fulfillment and contentment. Worship any god you choose would have been the most unloving thing God could have said to his people, then and now. It is God's love for us, not selfish love, that is behind his jealous desire to be worshipped. Let's go on and look at the second commandment, which I call the focus rule. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, and showing covenant faithfulness, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If the first commandment is about whom we worship, the second commandment is about how we worship. We not only must worship the right God, but we must worship him in the right way. Proper worship comes from hearing him rather than seeing him. Worship from the heart is elusive demanding because we hear him and we feel him but we don't see him causing us to listen in our spirit and not simply see with our eyes and touch with our hands as you can do with an idol people demand gods today that they can see and touch the Israelites never stopped struggling with this concept even as Moses received this commandment at Sinai the people were down in the valley melting their gold rings to create a calf idol, one they could see and touch. They threw a great party afterwards, pointed to the calf and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The people obviously couldn't wait for Moses to return, so they decided to take a shortcut. But God is telling us that nothing must be used to attract the eyes and thus distract the soul and the heart from him. Focus rule says that we are focusing on what God is doing and speaking in our heart, in our mind, on the inside, and we're not looking for confirmation on the outside, that we're listening to his voice and sensing the moving of his spirit inside, and we don't need an image of God on the outside. You see, an image of God is limited, and God is unlimited. An image of God is local, God is universal. An image of God is temporal, God is eternal. An image of God is material, God is spiritual. 
When you make an image, an idol, it distorts God. This explains why God provides no likeness of himself, and no one can really show us what Jesus looked like. Many have tried and failed, but should have never tried, as then the image comes an idol of the eyes. I have personally seen Jesus in the flesh the night that I was born again, and many people all over the world ask me what he looked like. I can't tell them. I know what he looked like, but I can't tell them. I can't express it in words. And why would I tell them? Why would I try to draw a picture of what he looked like? Then it would become an idol. So today God continues to be heard and felt and yet unseen. Idols, on the other hand, are seen but never heard. The prophet Isaiah mocked those who revered impotent idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, and if you will bear with me, I'm going to read verses 13 to 20. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with chisel and plane, carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty, puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. He says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his god, a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says, you are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, Is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? The second commandment that we're looking at, the focus rule, as I call it, the second commandment comes with a warning. Disobedience will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Verse 5 of Exodus 20. Is that unfair? Punishing children for what their parents did? The meaning is actually that the children, the generations to come, are punished by their parents' sin. Our failures, our idols, leave a legacy. Alcoholic children often come from alcoholic parents. And even if the children do not become alcoholics, they suffer the inner distress and wounds of being raised in the home of an alcoholic. They are adult children of alcoholic parents. 
Materialistic parents nurture the same values in their children, intentional or not. Sin is contagious within feelings. Idols, alcoholism, materialism are passed down from one generation to another. So God says to us, the reason I'm asking you not to place any object or enterprise or image or desire ahead of me is because I don't want you to wake up one day with a broken heart as you watch your loved ones making the same mistakes you made, tripping over the same rocks you tripped over, and struggling with the same cynical attitudes that afflicted you. The good news, however, is that we can leave positive legacies as well. So this second commandment, let me reread it to you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Here's the important part. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The commandment springs from God's perfect love. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy is a word used by lovers, and God is a perfect lover. He created us to be in relationship with him, and he knows that any other way will destroy our lives and the lives of those around us, the lives of our children and of our grandchildren. And I, for one, am grateful that he's a jealous God and shows his love and his loving care for us in giving us the Ten Commandments. So we looked at number one, which was the foundational rule that God has placed, and it's the hub of all the rules. And then we looked, that's the fundamental rule, and then we looked at the second commandment, which is the focus rule, that our focus must be on God and God alone, and that we must remove idols from our lives. And we all had them in the past, and some of us may have them still today. Well, we'll leave it there, and we'll work on commandment number three and four and five, and we'll work our way through all ten of them in the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a good night, good day, whichever time you're listening to this, and be blessed.